So it's great to be with you. And uh, in a moment or two, we're going to read uh, just a few verses, really, from Acts chapter 17. And I want to speak this morning about loving your city. And uh, that may sound like a bit of a strange concept, but it is in the Bible. And I want to talk about it a little bit this morning. Now, driving here, and I've seen more of Birmingham than I anticipated I was going to, obviously, this morning. But driving here in the sunshine on a spring morning and driving through the kind of locale around here, I mean, it's not difficult. I thought, man, this is going to be an easy sermon to preach. I mean, it's pretty posh around here, isn't it? Leafy and lovely. You know, you make Oxford kind of look in the shadows a bit. This part of Birmingham is very, very nice. Yeah, all right, not all of Oxford. Uh, So hopefully some of you won't feel it's too much of a foreign concept to think about loving your city. But what does it mean as a Christian and as a church community to really love your city? What does the Bible have to say about it? And we're going to look at that in a moment or two. I think one of the reasons why teaching is helpful on this subject is that I think some Christians can, through kind of misapplied theology, unhelpfully disengage with the environment and the community in which they live. There can be a kind of a super spirituality that sounds really good and convincing, but actually is flawed from a biblical perspective, which can go something like this. Well, I'm actually just a citizen of heaven. You know, I am just passing through. I'm an alien here in the world. This place has no attraction to me. You can find Christians like that sometimes, can't you? And, uh, you, and people say, all of my love is directed towards the Lord and a heavenly city. Now, obviously, all of those things are true. We are aliens, as the Bible describes us. Our citizenship isn't here. But we are told to engage with the world here while we're living on planet Earth. Not letting our affections, as Mark's prophetic word so helpfully said, not letting our kind of affections and value system get woven in, But we do want to engage and demonstrate the love of God to the places where we live and to be salt and light and to make a difference. And for that to happen, we really have got to integrate with the places where we live. And obviously, Jesus, our Savior, came into this world. His salvation plan, our Trinity God, the salvation plan was that he was sent into the world. If you like, to walk our streets, to meet people, to demonstrate the kingdom of God to people. So people could say, there's something about the kingdom of God with this guy. He was kind of a a, a tangible presence of the kingdom here on earth. And the to-do list that Christ left left for us was to go into all the world to integrate, to get stuck in, not to withdraw, not to have some kind of monastic mindset that says, actually, no, what we must do, instead of going into the world, we must withdraw from the world. That's the opposite, really, of the mission of God as we read it in the Bible. So far from disengagement, the mission of God mandates our complete engagement with the places where we live for His glory And also so that the church can succeed and grow. So we want to be his witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, even the ends of the earth. Amen? Great. You don't look convinced. I hope that you'll look more convinced towards the end. 
of the sermon. Let's just pray together and then we're going to look at the scriptures. Father, we do want to thank you for the opportunity of being together. And uh, we do ask you, Holy Spirit, to be with us. We pray that you'd be our teacher. We ask you to take every good thing from your word this morning and apply it to us. We do pray that you would help us to become more like the Lord Jesus. We do pray that we'd see the priorities of the Father more clearly. And we ask you to help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as one little additional introduction, we could say that God loves cities because heaven is described as a city. God's city, if you like. The Bible starts with a garden, but it ends with a city. It starts with two people. It ends with a multitude that no man can number. Jesus used city as a metaphor for the church, saying that we are a city set on a hill. That was Matthew 5. And also, Jesus said that Abraham, or the New Testament says that Abraham looked towards a city whose architect was God, architect and builder was God. It seems that God had a kind of a penchant for cities. That, that's how he chooses to describe the destination, even for the church. We're heading towards being a city together. And in Acts 17 and verse 24, I'm going to read it. Hopefully you can follow it if you've got a Bible with you. Acts 17 and verse 24 says this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now I just want to bring a number of points from that text this morning concerning loving Birmingham. And the first thing I want to say is this, embrace the sovereignty of God in your call to Birmingham. It says in verse 26, for one From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. It's an amazing scripture concerning the sovereignty of God. That actually the times, the seasons and the exact places as it says in the NIV of our habitation are kind of sovereignly ordained by God which means that no believer is ever a victim of circumstances. So God determines our lives in detail, the times and the places. And I think it's important for us as believers to view our location as nothing less than sovereignly ordained by God. However you found yourself to Birmingham, some of you might have had a kind of a skywriting prophetic moment calling you to this city of Birmingham. And for you, I guess it's probably most easy for you to say, well, I do feel called. I do love Birmingham. I feel I'm in the purposes of God. Some of you, however, might have lived nowhere else. 
You might be kind of man and boy, woman and girl. You might just be a complete indigenous Birmingham person. And that is no less by the sovereign hand of God. You're not here because you failed to get the job that you wanted somewhere else. You're not here because you haven't had the courage to move away. Primarily you're here because of the sovereign choice of God. He has ordained that for this season of your life, you live in Birmingham. It's within his bigger plan that you're here. Now there might be, I'm not naive, of course there might be all sorts of subordinated reasons that are trickling out from that, but it starts with the sovereignty of God. And there's something very damaging and disempowering for believers who begin to think themselves victims. It's kind of countercultural to the Bible's message. They're saying, oh, I'm still in Birmingham. <laughs> and I thought I was going to plant a church in Mauritius. <laughs> and I'm still here. And it kind of saps all of the life and motivation out of you. You know that kind of thinking that says, I missed God in 1984 and I've never been back on track. So hang on a minute, we've got a bigger view of God than that, haven't we? Nothing less than the sovereign plan of God has ordained that you are in Birmingham for this season of time, which makes a difference to how we think. One of the applications immediately would be, believe that your life in this location has a purpose in God. There is a divine agenda, which we're going to unpack a little bit in the next point. Secondly, believe that as God has called you, you can be fruitful in Birmingham. He never leads us into a place of death or decline. That is not the character of God. God leads you into a place where you can be fruitful and grow and be a blessing. Which means none of you are sitting here tied and hamstrung in Birmingham thinking, I would be fruitful anywhere else, but I just can't be fruitful here. I'm grumpy and I'm never going to change. You say, no, come on, we've got to break that thinking. It is the sovereignty of God that has drawn you here for fruitfulness and purpose and growth and to be a blessing. That's why you're here. And we can believe also that you are never a victim of circumstances. Whatever's happened, and sometimes there are some very, very big circumstances that dominate our lives, and I'm not trying to trivialize them. Really, I'm not. It may be that maybe some of you are here because of a divorce or a bereavement or something that seems so dark and difficult. But hey, the sovereignty of God can still rest upon difficult circumstances. They don't have to be happy circumstances to be sovereignly ordained. God can still achieve his sovereign purposes through our hardship and our trials. So point number one. Love your city because the sovereignty of God has placed you here. Now, before we move on, I just want to leave something lingering because we're going to come back to it later. And that is the whole sense of being a victim. I think culturally in our nation we're prone to it. That kind of pessimism, inner pessimism. You know, well, everybody else lands on their feet. Not for me. You know that kind of thinking? You're laughing because you're uncomfortable because you know it's true. 
And uh, that kind of victim of circumstances, like I would be so, I'd be doing so much better if I was somewhere else. If only that hadn't happened, if only they hadn't happened, if only, if only, if only. Later we're going to pray for that to be broken over your life and for you. If you feel paralyzed by that, and just to encourage you, whenever the two or three times I've preached this message in different places and I've offered that kind of prayer ministry, loads of people have responded (laughs) and said, actually, that's me. For years I have felt disempowered, like I'm just a victim of circumstances, like I'm off the track and I can't get back in the race. Well, if that's you, we're going to pray for you at the end. All right? So get in faith, ready for that. Okay, second point. Recognize the purposes of God at work in your call to Birmingham. Whether you are called here specifically for something or whether you've grown up here or whether you've just found yourself here apparently, whatever you think has called you to Birmingham, recognize the purposes of God at work, the kind of plan, the kind of divine agenda, as I called it previously. It says in verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. So you ask the question, why? Why would God be bothered to sovereignly ordain the exact place where I'm to live and the times for me? Why would God do that? And we can start thinking, well, it must be all about us. You know, God wants me, but well, I don't think it is primarily about us. God says in verse 27, God did this. He sovereignly ordained the exact places where we should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. The reason why God has sovereignly ordained that you live in Birmingham for this period of time is that by your life of faithfulness and worship in Birmingham, you would provoke other people to seek God and reach out and maybe some of them find him. That has always been the mission or purposes of God. That through his people, the kingdom of God is demonstrated. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. It's declared, where? Through the church. The manifold wisdom, or some paraphrases say the multicolored, vibrant wisdom of God is most clearly seen as it's displayed through the church. So why does God sovereignly ordain the exact places and times? for our lives, so that we may demonstrate the kingdom in order that people will feel provoked and reach out for God, seeking him, and some of them will find him. That's why God's placed you in Birmingham. And that kind of gets an axe right at the root of misunderstanding and poor thinking that says, well, I'm not an evangelist. No, that's fine, nor am I, really. It's not one of my primary gifts. But I'm still living my life in such a way in Oxford as I want to provoke people to seek God and reach out for him, hoping that some of them will find him. That's why God has sovereignly placed you here. So when you look around, left and right, around your house, I mean, just as you drive home today, I want you to take a deep breath and say, God has sovereignly ordained that I live at 57 Napier Road, Cowley, Oxford, in order that I might provoke some of these neighbours to reach out for God, to seek Him, hoping that some of them will find Him. That's why God has planned me to be here, which must give me a sense of responsibility and excitement, doesn't it? Wow, God must have an agenda. 
It wasn't just that we liked the house. Mm, I like that front door. Mm, if I was buying a front door, I'd have one like that. Oh, nice log burner. Mm. You know, we buy houses, don't we, thinking that it's all kind of a consumerist. Behind it all, God is saying, no, I am ordaining that you're here for these people. And then get out of your own street. Think about the area that you live in, the community, where you buy your fuel, where you have your hair cut. God's placed you in that community in order that you might provoke some of them to reach out for God, to seek him and find him. Now, a friend of ours in New Frontiers is a guy called Phil Moore. He leads a church in Wimbledon in London, and he's written a series of commentaries, really helpful commentaries. I commend them to you, and they're very accessible. This is 60 bite-sized insights into the book of Acts, and he writes a fantastic first-hand story about this passage that we're looking at today, and I'm going to read it to you, okay? This is Fillmore writing. He said, these two verses saved my next-door neighbor's life. They really did. Let me explain how it happened. Two years ago, my wife and I moved house. It was a horrible experience which dragged on for over a year. But one of the things which kept us smiling and trusting God, even though things got tough, was Paul's teaching here in verse 26. We kept praying and reminding God that he had promised to put us in the right house at the right time. We prayed that verse back to God so many times that we got to know it inside out. Our prayers didn't change God, but they certainly changed us. By the time we'd moved into our new home, we were convinced that God hadn't just placed us in this particular house at this particular time, but he had also placed all of our neighbours in their houses too. We read back to verse 17 and found that Luke expands this principle still further. Paul's strategy in Athens was simply to go to the shopping centre, start chatting to those who happened to be there and assume that they could not have met by accident. Paul was convinced that anyone he met was brought to him by the purposes of God. And we were beginning to be convinced of it too. Those who worked, we worked with, those we met through our children's schooling, those we met as we went shopping, all were brought to us by the God of verse 26, because he's also the the God of verse 27. He brings people into each of our lives by his sovereign hand, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. So we took a few steps to see what God was doing all around us. We threw a big housewarming party and invited all of our neighbours to come. Some of them did, including our next-door neighbour, Barry. He apologized for his wife as we opened the door. She was ill in bed and was sorry to have missed the party. I poured him a drink and told him that I would pray for her as I pray for people to be healed in Jesus' name and they often get better. If ever they wanted me to pray for Gainer, I would be happy to do so. Then after 30 seconds of chatting about my rather awkward offer, the conversation turned quickly to football, family, fixing fences and other neighborly small talk. It was several weeks later that we heard the second half of the story. That night, at two in the morning, Gaynor woke up. There was a strange light shining in their garden. She drew back the curtain and saw a magnificent star which had lit up her back garden as if it were daylight. She shook her husband awake and whispered, Barry, Barry, I think God is trying to speak to us. I still have absolutely no idea how I still have absolutely no idea how she came to this conclusion. 
Barry was tired from the party and in no mood for divine visitations. <laughs> Go back to sleep, he protested. If you want to talk about religion, then talk to our new neighbours. They're religious. Somewhere in his sleepy brain was the memory that I had talked about Jesus healing people. Gaynor went back to sleep. But she woke again a couple of hours later. The bright star was still lighting up her garden, as if it were daytime. She shook her husband again. Barry! Barry! I think God is still trying to speak to us. Barry was not amused. Talk to the people next door, he suggested. They're religious. I'm actually very glad she didn't ring us there and then. I'm not very good either when woken up in the middle of the night, and she might have found me considerably less religious than Barry thought I was at the party. (laughs) A few weeks later, we threw another party at our house, and again we invited our neighbours. Barry and Gaynor both came this time, and Gaynor told us her story. Frankly, I was a bit surprised. To my shame, I couldn't easily see the link between a bright star in her garden shining and God trying to talk to her. Fortunately, by God's grace, I had read Matthew 2 that morning and God prepared me by saying, I think you may be right. I told her God spoke to wise men in a similar way at the first Christmas. Now what's interesting is that the bright star was not the end of the story, but the beginning. God sent them a star to lead them to the person of Jesus, I told her. We talked and talked. We gave her a copy of Mark's Gospel, invited her to come to church. She came and kept coming. Until one morning, as she listened to the preacher, she felt utterly convicted of her sin and committed her life to Christ. A throwaway comment at a housewarming party had led to a sign in the night sky, and this in turn had led to her study of Scripture, attending church, and the giving of her life to Christ. Those two verses had saved her life. They convinced two ordinary messages like my wife and me there is no such thing as coincidence and that we should therefore invite round our neighbours and see what God might do. Our extraordinary God is at work all around us all the time. If only we will open our eyes to see him. Isn't that a great story? So I want to encourage you. If you are a Christian, you are commissioned by God's primary agenda to provoke people around you to seek God. And we do that by our lifestyle, our actions, our witness, our friendship, our hospitality, a willingness to pray with people if the opportunity comes up. We don't have to be Billy Grahams preaching at people in the street. We just have to be good neighbours believing that God has sovereignly ordained that you live where you live for this sole purpose primarily of provoking people to seek him. Secondly, gain courage with the gospel. Gain courage with it. The gospel is simply the story of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you've got one of, the, got one of your own. You've got a kind of a personal gospel testimony of your own about how God's broken into your life. Get familiar with it. Just learn how to speak it out confidently. You don't have to get complex. Just tell your story. Get connected with people. For another application point, I'm amazed how many Christians are disconnected from people. 
aren't very warm as neighbours, aren't the kind of people that smile and say hello to people in Tesco's at the checkout. They wear name badges. What a giveaway for a Christian. Have you ever tried that? How surprised people are when you say, Hi Claire, how's your day today? How do you know my name? You're wearing a badge. I went into Tesco's once, there was a lady behind the till and she had a huge strap, kind of repetitive strain, you know, one of those support straps on her wrist. I said, Abby, what have you done to your wrist? She said, working here. She said, it's repetitive strain, it's so painful. And I said, what are you going to do about that? She said, the doctor's told me there's nothing that can be done. I said, he's lying. She said, why? I said, I'm a Christian. I said, we pray for people every Sunday to be healed. So I said, do you want me to pray for your wrist? She said, yes, but not here. <laughs> she said, That's, could you pray for it as you go out in the car park? I said, I'll be doing it. It's like, provoke people to seek God where you live. So get connected with people. Offer to pray. Look for ways to show love. So we could summarize that point by saying this. So love your city but God has placed, because God has placed you here to help others seek him. And find him. Now finally, I know time's pressing on. What time do we need to finish? About quarter past? About quarter past, okay. Third point. Loving Birmingham really does mean loving people. Okay? You can't love a city. You can't even love Oxford, as beautiful as that is. Somebody described that recently as the Florence of England. And I live there. How good is that? doesn't mean loving the architecture and the parks and plants and the beautiful trees. When he talks about loving a city, God's talking about loving the people in that city, connecting with them. It says in verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. If we are God's children, then we're chips off the old block. There's a family likeness. And God loves people. You know, if we could say this, and forgive me for the informality, but we could say God really is a people person. Jesus loved people. You know, they couldn't help but be with him. I'm always amazed in the church today. We're always trying to get people in, aren't we, in church life. And that's not a bad thing. Jesus didn't have that problem. You know, Jesus had the opposite problem. He was trying to work out how to send people away. Have you noticed that? Because so many people wanted to be with him, he had the opposite problem. So he would say, come on, let's just go up to the mountaintop. Let's get away from the crowds. Push the boat out into deeper water. Come on, let's just see if we can get a bit of space. Why? Because he was surrounded by people all the time. The crowds loved him. And we are chips off the old block. There's a family likeness. And Jesus demonstrated his love for people in numbers of ways. He went to them and he welcomed them. He really did. He went to them. He went out to where they were. He connected. He often met them where they were. It's amazing that. You know, Jesus was very situational with his relationships, wasn't he? You know, the woman at the well. What he didn't do is say, I'll tell you what, there's an invitation there. I'll see you on Sunday in the synagogue. You know, see you there. We'll chat there. That'll be fine. You know, hi, good to meet you. Good to meet you. Mark, that's great. Bill Bailey, Mark. I'd say, there we are. Alpha, three weeks on Wednesday. Hey, I did well there, didn't I? 
Jesus didn't talk to people like that, did he? Jesus is totally situational. He's like, meet somebody there, go talk to them, witness to them. You know, he, he's there. Zacchaeus up the tree. He's like, hi, Zacchaeus, coming to your house for tea. You know, hope you've got some Arctic roll. <laughs> people are laughing, that dates you. Not everybody knows what an Arctic roll is. <laughs> hey, I was brought up on that as a treat. <laughs> Who doesn't know what an Arctic roll is? Arctic roll. Beautiful sponge wrapped round a core cylinder of ice cream. Eh? It was a real Saturday afternoon treat when you're my age. You know, he was there. He didn't say to Zacchaeus, I tell you what, let's make an appointment. He just connected where they were. <coughs> Jairus, you know, that guy. Just think about all of the times Jesus met people and showed compassion to them. Jairus, you know, leaves his dying daughter breaks camp you know he's a jewish pharisee leader you know he should be opposing christ he knows the only hope his dying daughter has got is for christ to pray for her is to come and heal her so he runs trying to find jesus have you seen him have you seen him and jesus sees him coming through the crowd and his friends say to him don't they they say jairus don't trouble the master your daughter is dead a moment and Jesus looks at Jairus and he says don't be afraid just believe what a great moment then he puts his arm around Jairus I imagine and says where do you live come on let's go back to your place I'll pray for her now I mean that's so amazing isn't it connecting right in the moment the woman caught in adultery would be another one you know, I mean, what a shocking, shocking exchange. Woman caught in the act of adultery, brought in her shame and her nudity right into the court. Jesus is there. He won't even look at her because he doesn't want to add to her embarrassment or shame. It's amazing, isn't it? All the other guys are like, look at her, look, look, look. It says Jesus cast his eyes to the ground. Wrote, it, wrote there. It's Jesus won't even look at her, won't even add to her shame, doesn't want to embarrass her. And he says, doesn't he, I'll tell you what, he who has no sin casts the first stone. Who is the only person there with no sin? The only person qualified to throw a stone didn't do it. And it says, starting with the oldest, they left one by one. Starting with the oldest, because they knew they had more, more sin than the others. They'd lived longer, made more mistakes. So starting with the oldest, they left until it was just Jesus and the woman. He says, who condemns you? And she looks up, nobody. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I mean, what a fabulous exchange. And we're to love people like that. We're to love them. You know, we're to be there connecting with people and really provoking them to seek God. So, he had compassion. He really did work it out. So we want to love our city because really it's the family way. Loving people is what God would do. If Jesus visited Birmingham incarnationally, I can guarantee he would go to people that we would be offended to have in our houses and he would eat with them. And he would offend people like us. Because we'd say, what's he doing with all the problems? Why is he in the red light district? Why? Doesn't he know he should be a Christian? And he's there connecting, loving 
provoking people to seek the Father. So let me just summarise, we're going to pray. As you enter another year in Birmingham, I want to tell you and encourage you to get excited about being here. The sovereignty of God has placed you here. Nothing less has done it. You are not a victim of circumstance. You are not here because you've lacked courage to go somewhere else. You are here in this season because God has sovereignly ordained it. Secondly, recognize that the purposes of God are at work in your living here. That you can be fruitful. That there is a divine agenda. That there is real stuff for you to do for God here. To be fruitful and to be a blessing. And finally, get stuck in and get connected with people. Your neighbors, work colleagues, friends. Let tomorrow be the beginning of a new attitude to people. Say, God has put me here in order that I might be the one person that might provoke them to seek him. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to pray.